Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast, produced by Bob and Brad, the two most famous physical therapists on the internet. I am Bob, and my guest today is Dr. Dane Hansen. He's of Summit Orthopedics. He's a orthopedic surgeon, and he does knee and hip replacements. And we'll get into it. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hansen. All right, Dr. Hansen, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, as we were talking about, um, we got a lot of questions, and I hope we can just dive into it. That that sounds perfect. Okay. Go ahead. Why don't we start with your backstory? Maybe give us a little background of yourself. Yeah. Yep. So um, I'm. Uh, I was born in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, have been here most of my life, other than some of my medical training. So. I grew up here, went to Bethel University in the Twin Cities, mm-hmm. um, played baseball there, uh, and then ended up going to medical school in Des Moines, Iowa, um, and have moved around a bit since. So I did my residency training in orthopedics in Columbus, Ohio, um, and then my fellowship and my specialty, specialty training was a year in total joint replacement at Rush in Chicago. I see. So that was kind of my last, um, my last bit of training, and he- ever since I've been back here in the Twin Cities. I'm one of the uh, one of the joint replacement specialists at Summit Orthopedics in um, the Twin Cities here in Minnesota. Yeah, let me take this uh, occasion to mention that the website is summitortho.com. It'll be in the description below. Um, I also want to say when I looked at the website. I saw uh, 55 testimonials under your picture, and uh, they were all very positive. You're obviously a, a good surgeon and a good person, so they really like you. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. So um, we're going to talk about hip replacements first. Um, what are the indicators it may be time to have a hip replacement? Yeah, um, a good question. You know, hip arthritis, um, you know, really arthritis in different joints kind of show up different ways and with different symptoms. But hips, you know, the main two things obviously are pain um, and then typically range of motion restriction. So stiffness in the hip, difficulty bending, twisting, um, those sort of things. And, you know, everyone tolerates a different amount of that. So, you know, when is it time to have surgery is, is a pretty fluid question but um it really relates to you know how bad is your pain um how long has it been going on and how much is it you know affecting you um number two how how well can we control it you know with medications or injections or things like that and then kind of the big buzzword you hear a lot in joint replacement or in arthritis is quality of life Um, and again that's subjective but it's really based on is your lifestyle and is your function um, what you want it to be to have that quality of life, whether you're still working, whether you're retired, whether you're just trying to be active, you know, whatever it is you're, you're looking for. Um, and so that's a big part of the job is figuring out when people hit that point and, sure. you know, when we've, when we've run out of other options to try. Yeah. It seems to me that a lot of people want uh, starts affecting their sleep is a bad one and also if they're on opioids that want to get them you off got it. right yep yep exactly 
So this actually may affect that somewhat. Uh, this next question, uh, how long can the average person expect the whole hip replacement to last nowadays? Yeah, um, that is, um, has gotten better and better. So, you know, the current style we're using um, or the current kind of technology we have has actually been going on, been in, been in use for about 20 years. Um, and we do not yet see any real signs of wear and tear. Um, the prior generation, 15 to 20 years was about as good as it got. Um, you'd see some significant wear and tear on the, on the bearing surfaces. Mm -hmm. Um, but so far so good with the new, the new materials. And so we expect, um, anywhere, you know, between 25, 30, you know, we really don't know, um, I, I think uh, 30 years is kind of what I tend to tell my patients wow. is our, you know, our, our average expectancy. That really changes things. I mean, it sure does. Yeah. It makes it a lot easier to make, make that decision, decision when you're right. not, when you're not worried about how, you know, having it done two, three, four times right. you know, if you're younger. Exactly. So how do you decide if a patient is a good candidate for partial hip replacement? Yeah, so um, partial hip replacement is kind of an interesting one. Uh, you know, it sounds like if you look at it, it would be something that might be less invasive or, a, you know, an easier way to fix, fix problems. But really, partial hip replacement is almost solely used for, um, for fractures. So elderly patients that fall and break their hips, um, if they don't otherwise have arthritis, you know, you don't need a full hip replacement in that scenario. You can just replace that broken ball of the hip joint. Um, and that would be what you would call a partial hip replacement. So anyone with any significant arthritis that's going through a replacement surgery for, for that, um, the arthritis is almost, you know, globally on both sides of the joint in the ball portion of the joint and the socket. And so a total hip replacement is really the only, um, the only option to fully solve that problem. I see. Um, well, I'm going to go off script here a little bit. Um, if someone has significant osteoporosis, how does it affect your decision to, you know, move forward? Yeah, um, it plays into it. Um, I would say osteoporosis in and of itself is not a reason, a full reason to say you cannot have replacement surgery. Um, what we do is, you know, as you look at the types of implants and the way that we fix those implants into your bone, um, the majority of patients have what's called a press fit hip replacement. So it doesn't use a glue or a cement or anything to hold it. Um, your bone structure is strong enough where, where those pieces just meet and they stay solid mm. um, and actually get some, some bone healing that can happen to those implants um, in the, you know, with the theory that that would be a longer lasting situation, right. but in a, in, in a more elderly patient with osteoporosis, you can use, uh, we use the term cement, but essentially it's kind of a glue or a grout that, um, that hardens very quickly. And so you can use that to stabilize the, the implant in the bone um, in patients with, with weaker bone or concern that, you know, a, a tight fitting piece might cause a fracture or something like that. I see. So with a press fit, uh, is there, are they non-weight bearing or partial weight bearing after the uh, full, they are? full weight bearing? Yeah. Oh. And so same thing, the technology has progressed and, um, probably just the process of rehab has progressed. You know, we used to, if you looked at hip replacement, 
20, 25 years ago, most people were partial weight bearing until those, right. those implants could fully ingrow. Um, we trust them more exactly. now, I think technology wise, and we've just seen it long enough and understand it well enough to know that immediate weight bearing really doesn't in increase the risk of having, you know, a complication afterwards. So this next one is a big question. Uh, if someone decides they're going to have a hip replacement, so there's three different uh, surgical approaches, uh, as I understand. You have the mm -hmm. direct anterior front approach, side approach, yep. back approach. So how do you decide which one? Yeah, um, that's a pretty uh, debated question right now. So that's I thought um, in, I would say on average, probably the main decision point for that for most surgeons is the comfort of the surgeon. Sure. So, you know, training background, um, you know, just, you know, experience with one versus the other, um, depending on where you train and when you trained, you probably learned one approach more so than others. So that plays a little bit of a role into it. Sure. Um, patient or excuse me, surgeons that do more than one approach, um, do use some factors, age, um, body size, you know, things like that, because certain, certain things make one or the other easier or harder. Um, Personally, I, um, I perform the posterior approach. Sure. Um, you know, if you look at the posterior approach or any of these approaches from, you know, the past to now, the invasiveness of them has drastically decreased. You know, there's much less invasive, even if it's considered more of a traditional approach, it's done very differently today than it was years ago. I see. Um, and so what, um, when we make those decisions again, I think, you know, for myself personally, that's, that's more of a, um, a comfort thing. You know, that's, that was my main training. Um, that's where I felt most comfortable, um, as sure. I was learning how to do these uh, myself. But then second of all, I do, um, I do a lot of revision type procedures, which are the, you know, replacement of a replacement or a sure. patient that has damage or a fracture or an infection or things like that. Um, and that posterior approach can be taken from that very small, minimally invasive approach to a much more extensive approach to solve any I see. Um, major problem. And so to me, that that just, you know, kind of makes the most sense for, for what I do. Now, I don't know if this is correct, but, you know, when the, recently the anterior approach, it seemed like the buzzword, you know, the buzz belief was that there was less dislocations and it was uh you can be more active with it i mean mm -hmm. that that's really not turned out to be true right yeah i think um that was the initial idea behind it you know right. as right. again as you look at the posterior approach um if you're if you are going to have your hip dislocator pop out of place um the vast majority of the time that's going to go out the back side of your hip and so, you know, kind of the theory was if we kind of go through that backside of the hip to do the surgery, now you're at higher risk of that, sure. that tissue failing or, or having an issue. And so for many years, um, posterior approach had what are called hip precautions. And so that's, um, you know, restrictions on how far you bent, how far you twisted, if you could cross your legs or not, all these stipulations for sometimes some surgeons would do that for even up to three months. And so that, as you can imagine, would slow down 
the recovery process. Yep. Um, but um, same idea as the as that. I guess, so I guess what I should say is that so the anterior approach came about with the mindset of we're not violating that tissue. Right. And so in theory, this is a much more stable situation. And so those restrictions weren't put in place and patients were able to get up quicker, uh, move more, you know, more gotcha. quickly through the rehab process. Um, but over the last five or so years, I would say um, the poster approach rehab protocol has caught up. And so we realized again, that a lot of the, the basis of why we were doing those precautions was based on the more extensive approaches, um, you know, more soft tissue damage, and those dislocation rates were higher back in those times, but we've really shrunk that down and gotten to a point where, you know, most of us um, that even do poster approach don't have any formal restrictions. Really? So, so the rehab protocol is essentially no different um, any longer. And so that's wow. where those differences in, you know, that faster recovery that maybe we're seeing early on with the anterior approach have kind of disappeared now that we've allowed everybody to rehab the same way. Yeah, it's funny. Well, I'm old enough to talk about this way. I mean, years ago sure. at the Mayo Clinic, um, we had like, you know, 15 doctors and they had 15 different protocols for the right. patients. I mean, it was just insane. So, all right, that's very helpful. So, um, so we're talking about... Uh, do you see some common mistakes that your patients make after a hip replacement? Um, yeah, I do. I think, um, you know, there's kind of hip replacement. If you compare it to knee replacement or shoulder replacement, um, is actually a little bit simpler and more straightforward of a recovery for whatever reason, hip joints really respond well to replacement. Um, sure. it's, I think it may be something to do with the mechanics of the joint or how it, you know, how it, um, how the implants, um, you know, function so well immediately. But um, even with that, you know, there are, I guess, with that, I would say that I do see patients tend to potentially move quicker than they need to sometimes, you sure. know, so the goal is to to be back to you know, riding your bike or playing golf or, you know, doing all these things right. within a week, you know, they just want to be normal. And there are patients that do that. And the surgery is incredible. It can allow for really quick progress, but sure. um, it's kind of finding that balance, you know, step one is you got to take some time to just kind of teach yourself how to move normally again. Um, you know, patients have been so dysfunctional or limping or all these things that if you just kind of blow right through the idea of, I'm going to sort of reset my gait mechanics and reset my, you know, my muscles, my muscle strength. Um, you might not get quite as far into the, you know, get as good of a recovery as you could. If you just kind of, you took that time to work through it. Sure. It's funny. So it's, just, it's, it's, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. Say we, we just did a video on this yesterday that people progress too rapidly. So yeah, and I think that okay. probably affects knees knees a little more than yes. hips, but was, um, but you we do see it in, in hip replacements yep. as well. Yep. Do you consider any of your patients uh, too heavy to have the surgery? Um, so I guess the the answer to that is yes. I mean, there um, the way we look at weight is very 
dependent um, on multiple factors. So sure. um, there's no there's no official weight limit on a hip replacement. So it's not that you would be too heavy for the hip replacement to hold you or to to function right. Um, but a big part about being a good surgeon is making sure patients understand what their risks are and how to safely get people through surgery. Um, and weight or BMI, you know, your body mass index right. are two big, um, two big indicators to potential risks, um, which can be everything from those dislocations we talked about to infections, um, to as simple as, you know, anesthetic complications, because typically overweight patients have sleep apnea or have some more sure. significant medical issues or they're diabetic and all those things can lead to complications. So there's, there's no formal rule. Um, a lot of surgeons and a lot of research has kind of shown that um, a BMI greater than 45, um, which is which is a pretty significant amount of obesity, yes, is, um, yes. does set you up to a very um, significant increased risk of a complication. And so there are surgeons and hospitals and practices that um, that tend to use that limit as kind of their main. Sure you know, official kind of cutoff, if you want to call it that. But um, the way I look at it is that weight is a gradient. And, you know, no matter no matter where you are on that scale, um, that doesn't, that doesn't mean, you know, you're, you're doomed to fail or doomed, to, you know, or guaranteed to be successful if you're very well, you sure. know, if you're in good shape, it's, it's really just kind of that um, risk stratifying of, of, what does that mean? You know, what are your other issues that go with that? And, um, you know, making a good decision on, do we think this is something we can do safely and get you through it without, right. without a, a, a complication? Right. Makes sense. So um, some of the patients were wondering, is it normal to have swollen legs after a total hip replacement? I'd say yes. Um, so, you know, there's a few things that happen. You obviously, when you go through a hip replacement, even though it's a quick procedure, it works well, you move quickly on it. You know, there's quite a bit of trauma that happens to your hip. Sure. Um, and part of that process is swelling. Um, so your, you know, your tissues get inflamed and swell. So your muscles get swollen. Um, you do get fluid that collects. You even get some bleeding around the hips. You can get bruising. Um, and that number one leads to some swelling in general, but also it can lead to, um, kind of giving what we call venous congestion. So your veins that are trying to get the fluid from your feet and your ankles up out to your, you know, to your core uh, body again, it has to go through that hip replacement area. And a lot of those veins aren't moving as well. The sure. swelling compresses on some of that. And so that definitely leads to, like I said, sometimes swelling even, you know, right down to your toes. Yeah. When is it a uh, concern? Um, I think, um, if it's painful, so if it's significantly painful swelling, we worry about things like blood clots and, sure. and those sort of issues. So it's worth um, evaluating that. Um, and if it's swelling that doesn't really go away, you know, so a big part of this recovery process is um, taking breaks, elevating your leg, icing. Um, and if, you know, if you see your swelling kind of going slowly up and down throughout the day, that's that's pretty common. But if, if you have, you know, really significant, severe swelling that just won't won't go anywhere and kind you can't do anything about stubborn. it but definitely it's worth yeah stubborn yeah. swelling yeah is worth taking a look at 
All right, another issue that was brought up, uh, what if you're still having pain in your hip over a year after surgery? Why might it still hurt? Yeah, um, there could be many reasons um, and those aren't always easy to figure out, but um, I would say probably the one of the most common reasons for continued pain is some um, continued muscle dysfunction or stiffness. Um, you know, rehab okay. is a big part of recovery, um, but there's again, kind of that wide range of how far people get through that process. And I think, um, you know, most people that get hip replacements have had such severe dysfunction in their hip for such a long time that, sure. um, it can take sometimes a year or two or, you know, even longer to really reset all those issues, gotcha. um, getting your range of motion better building all the strength up in the stabilizing hip muscles, um, getting your core, you know, and your pelvic muscles built back up. Gotcha. Um, it's not, it's not a quick fix for some of those issues. Um, even if the hip replacement recovers well. So I think that's probably most common. Um, there are many other reasons. So if you are having, you know, pain at that stage, same thing. It is, it is very worth getting, you know, reevaluated by your surgeon because we, we can see, um, kind of what we call low-grade infections um, that could cause some chronic pain in hips. We can see implant problems, you know, where the bone didn't heal to the implant as it should have. Um, you know, there are other, you know, things that could be a bigger deal or could require further treatment um, as well. So, you know, it's kind of a long list of things, but generally the idea is you know, if you're still a pain at a year, it needs to be your, assessed. your surgeon should, your, your sure. surgeon should know about it. Exactly. Yep. So um, just real quickly, when is it okay to shower? When is it okay to drive after hip replacement? Yeah. So um, lot, lot the showering piece know. of it. Yeah. The showering piece of it uh, is a little bit dependent. So um, most of us now use waterproof dressings. And so oh, that actually right. allows for immediate showering. Um, and that is really nice, obviously, because um, it just gives you that feeling of, of kind of getting back back to life, being able to, you know, kind of freshen up, et cetera. But yeah, so right right from the start, you can shower. Um, depending on if the, if the surgeon does not use a waterproof dressing, there are other ways to seal that off. People use saran wrap or press and seal, or there's different ways to, you know, kind of keep that incision dry while you shower. But usually okay. most surgeons would allow it within the first couple of days. Wow. Nice. Yeah. And, and then and as of driving, um, there's, there's a couple factors. Um, which hip is it, you know, right versus left. Um, if it's left and, and it's not your driving leg, then um, really the, the only hold on you driving is safely getting in and out of the car. So feeling sure. comfortable doing that. And then um, not making sure you're not taking any narcotic medicine. Um, sure. Makes for sense. the right hip, for the right hip, it's a little different. Um, there's no formal rule on it. Um, there are some older research studies that say it does take, anytime you have a major leg surgery, it takes about six weeks to fully recuperate reaction time. So if you're driving to be able to, you know, quickly and actively operate the brake and that sort of thing. Um, I think that I, I base it a little bit more on function. So we see patients at two to three weeks after surgery and I see most of my hip replacement patients at that point are 
are moving well enough and have good muscle control in their leg that I think it's, it's relatively safe. So somewhere in that, you know, three to six week range is probably the average. Well, I know there's a lot of factors to consider also for this, but on average, how quickly are people able to go back to work? Uh, yeah, that's a, that is a good question. There's, there are factors. I would say I see everything for, you know, people that are desk type workers or, or, you know, these days, a lot of people working from home, um, you know, they're going to back to work within a week or so sometimes. Sure. Wow. Um, it takes, you know, people that are doing more mobile work on their feet quite a bit, right. that sort of thing. I think right. probably the average is closer to six weeks. Um, and then if you're going back to very labor intensive work, you know, got a lot of, um, a lot of factory workers, um, construction, you know, contractors, those sort of things, it's probably closer to two to three months to really, you know, be safe. If you're climbing ladders, if you're doing heavy lifting, you know, those sort of things. Can a person run with a, a total hip replacement? Technically, yes. Um, so I get that question a lot. Um, I do. The replacement can tolerate running. Um, you're not going to break it or damage it. You know, there's mm. kind of two thoughts. So that, so I guess if you're saying, you know, could I, could I run down the street if I was trying to, you know, catch my kid or am I, yeah, if I'm playing sure. with my grandkids in the yard, can I jog around? The answer is absolutely you can. Yeah. Um, the theoretical downside of it, which again, we don't really know the answer to this because we don't have that many people that do significant amounts of running on these. Right. Um, you know, the idea is that that repetitive pounding and high impact exercise would sure. potentially wear the implants out more quickly. Now we're talking about 30 plus year implants. And so, you know, the question on how much does that matter? We don't know, right. but I definitely have some patients that do some light jogging. Um, you may have a surgeon that tells you absolutely no way. Um, sure. And that's probably related to that mindset of, you know, we want this thing to last as long as possible. And that, gotcha. you know, but uh, I guess I, I go with the, the idea of um, if you have something else you can do, you know, lower impact, sure, cycling, swimming, um, elliptical machines, those sort of things, and you enjoy that, then, then that probably makes a little more sense to be your, you know, your main, main mode of exercise. Sure. Makes sense. Um, so final question on hips, uh, anything new on the horizon for hip replacements? So. Um, I would say not much, you know, when it comes to the implants, again, we've, we've seen such good results with what we have. There's always little sure. tweaks to these things, but nothing, nothing major or, you know, kind of industry changing. Um, I do think one thing that's just kind of becoming more common that you may hear more about is robotics. You know, so you hear about all these kind of robotic, um, robotic assistance for hip replacement and knee replacement, right. and that's becoming much more mainstream. Um, hip replacement's a little behind, um, hasn't been in use or in, in practice as long. So that's something that'll probably continue to grow. Um, there's still no, no um, official understanding on, you know, is it really leading to drastically better outcomes right. doing it doing that with you know with exactly. navigation or with these robotic techniques but it's definitely going to become much more talked about and much more common i think in the in the future here sure all right let's uh head on over to knee replacements now um
Sounds good. S same thing. Uh, the first question, uh, what are the indicators that it's time to have a knee replacement? I'd say um, the indicators for knee replacement, you know, arthritic symptoms are, um, are pain, um, stiffness. Um, in knees, you see, tend to see a lot more issues with swelling. So you'll see people get chronic swelling or fluid that collects in the knee. Um, which can cause, you know, that feeling of stiffness and tightness. Sure. Um, in, in these, you can also get a lot of what we call mechanical symptoms. So if you have loose cartilage or if your arthritis also, you know, you develop a torn meniscus, things like that, you can see um, these, you know, symptoms where the knee will catch or lock or sure. grab. Um, and those are big indications too. Um, something else you see in people that have real chronic arthritis is, is actual deformity. So you'll see their knee bow inward or outward sure. as they wear down the cartilage in their knee. So you start seeing physical changes in the joint. So obviously you'll get uh, a side that's longer than the other. And how do you account for that when you do the surgery? So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so for knee replacement, um, you know, yes, when you kind of that same idea, when you lose cartilage, you're, you're, you know, your limb technically shortens, right? Because you're right. actually losing surface and it's collapsing. Um, along with that, your, your knee bows. And so that bow doesn't necessarily shorten your bones, but it changes the distance to the floor. If that, right. So it makes gotcha. that leg, that limb feel shorter. And so knee replacement is a little bit um, easier to determine um, length because we work within your ligament structure. And your ligaments can only stretch so far. Oh, gotcha. um, and so really we're, you know, we're trying our best to only re basically remove the same amount of bone and tissue as we replace. And just by doing that um, and realigning the knee, essentially straightening the knee back out, um, we can be quite confident that we're getting that knee back to its, you know, kind of its native or normal, normal length. Sure. But most patients, you know, if they do have a significant bow to their knee, they'll notice, you know, they'll come in and actually say, I can tell or I, I can feel a difference absolutely in the, in the length of my leg or the, you know, the position of my knee or the, you know, the alignment of it being straighter than they remember gotcha. it. Yeah. The problem I see is when you got two knees. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. So can we talk about knee injections? So. Yeah. Am I right that there's two main categories, corticosteroid and visco visco supplementation? Yeah, I think that's um, that's the basics. You know, corticosteroids it's it's a steroid type medication, and um, it's different than you know the the usual steroid you think of, kind of the muscle pumping, you know, muscle building steroid. It's it's truly an anti-inflammatory, so it's a very sure. um, heavy duty anti-inflammatory. And that's what it's doing in the knee is it's designing to kind of turn off all the reactions that are going on there. So, you know, arthritis is, is when you lose the cartilage in your knee, when you lose all that protection. Um, but a lot of the symptoms you get are related to how your body reacts to that. So the extra fluid that builds up, um, the pain, you know, that comes with it. Um, sure. Some of those issues are more related to inflammation. And so if you can, use a steroid, what it does is it decreases those things. So pain gets better, um, swelling gets better, um, 
and it and it can give you you know that nice relief sure um it is very temporary and that's something i think that we see more and more is that um, we used to use these as really consistent and constant you know year 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 to year to year to year kind of treatments but um we're you know the success rate or the longevity of them you're we're we're starting to kind of hone in on the fact that you know this is a very temporary fix um it gives you relief in those really acute problems where you have a lot of severe pain um but it's not you know it's not fixing anything in the long term when you say temporary what do you mean like two months three months yeah i'd say the year? average is probably about three months um uh -huh. you know i have seen people um you know go longer than that you'll see people that uh, it can get you know more than a year out of sure. one injection um other people it's even shorter you know they get an injection and steroid for some reason doesn't doesn't work in their system as well as other people and they only get a few days of relief so you know it's it's again one of those things that it's a very safe thing to try and it can be very successful so vast majority of the time we are going to at least attempt that before surgery sure. um, because if you happen to be in that category where you do get that significant amount of relief it's it's very worthwhile but how many of those um, can you do a year uh so i'd say most um most of us would kind of hold to about a three-month window so gotcha. that usually means you know up three to four a year is, sure. is the max that most people would consider um, that gives the, the medication enough time to kind of work its way out of the knee. So you're not overloading it. Um, gotcha. It is sort of a, so most of the steroids are a bit of a, what we call it a crystallized type medicine. So there's some, there's some solid component to it. And if you get too much in there, it can actually start aggravating the knee. Make it, make it worse. Um, making yeah. things, yeah, making yeah. things worse than better. Yep. So what about the other category? Yeah. So, so visco supplementation is, um, essentially there's multiple different brands of it, but it's a, it's a hyaluronic acid gel. And so it's a cartilage based gel that, um, is designed to be a lubricant. So if you kind of think about, a you know, an, an oil change in a car, um, you know, your fluid in your knee gets very thin as you develop arthritis. Um, and so it doesn't coat surface as well it doesn't really function in the way it's designed to function and so the theory behind these injections is that it puts a thicker substance in the knee that will will give you that better lubrication gotcha. um you know the interesting thing about them is as we again have kind of studied the research on them um the success rate of them is much worse than we thought it was oh. um, you know we kind of get, get these anecdotal situations and i still see them we still use them right. you have patients that say i had a, a gel injection five years ago and i haven't had an ounce of pain since wow you know and and so that is that can happen uh, sure. but when you look at the big the big research studies they essentially say you know we can't prove that they're much better than even just you know putting some saline in your knee or you know kind of a placebo sure. type of gotcha. gotcha so so it's it's still it's still available it's still indicated um, patients that are looking for them, if, if you know, um, people watching might know or hear that um, it's getting more difficult to get them approved. So insurance companies right. are starting to be less interested in paying for them because they're expensive and we're not, you know, we can't prove much utility with them. 
Gotcha. Um, so they're sometimes requiring, you know, going to physical therapy or doing other treatments before you can even have one. Um, and the orthopedic society has even come out and said, you know, we can't, we can't really give a, a, a strong recommendation that these are, that these are useful injections. So yeah. it's, it again, kind of depending on region or the doctor you're seeing, you know, you may hear them kind of say, no, we don't do them or I don't do them or I don't think they're worth it. You may have some that would absolutely recommend it and, you know, everywhere in between. But my, my use on them or my thought on the the idea is, you know, if you're dealing with extremely young patients that you're trying to avoid joint replacement surgery on uh, very elderly patients or very sick patients that aren't good surgical candidates, um, you know, or people that just tell you, you know, I want to do everything that's absolutely possible before I consider surgery. There's still, I think there's still a, a place for them. Yeah. Makes sense. So um, now there's well, one other, I was just going to add no, on, ahead, there, yeah. there's one other category that's, um, that's out there. Um, we talk about the term regenerative medicine. And so um, you're starting to see more, you will start to see more um, consideration for uh, PRP injections and stem cell injections for arthritis. You know, a lot of times those have been used for tendon treatments, um, you know, um, re, you know, um, muscular treatments, not true arthritic conditions. Sure. Um, they are available. Um, they are not FDA approved. So people have to pay out of pocket for them. And as of right now, we have not shown that you can truly regrow cartilage. So we are not regenerating the joint, but they have been very successful in, in more long-term pain relief than potentially something like cortisone would be. I'm glad um, you brought it up because a lot of people are asking about that one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, that's still, it's still kind of, I would call it in its infancy a little bit, you know, it is available. Sure. I think we're still trying to hone in on what the real indication for those are in arthritis, um, you know, as, as its own um, subset. So um, probably more to come there, but um, those are available. You will hear people talking a lot about them. So is it likely the FDA will approve it as at some point? It, it's hard to know. Hard yeah, to it's hard to know. I think I think we're too early in the research. I think there is good, you know, there is there are good studies. Um, like I said, probably even better data than you would see with the gel injections. Um, but I don't think we have enough yet. So sure. you know, I think it's a time will tell kind of thing, but you know, it has been approved by the FDA for some other conditions, you know tendonitis treatments and things like that. So I do, um, I do think that that will, you know, be something probably coming down the line. Sure. So we talked about hip replacements and how they're lasting longer. Uh, Is the same true on knee replacements? Uh, I would say yes. Um, The technology in knee replacements is probably advancing a little faster than hip replacement because we're still trying to you know, hone in on the perfect system, if you will. Um, if you look backwards, you know, research studies coming out in the last few years are, are showing that 80 to 85% of knee replacements last over 20 years. Um, and those are 
you know, knee replacements that were done 20 years ago. Gotcha. Um, and so since then, technology has improved. Um, the plastic yeah. bearing surfaces have gotten better. Um, we've added um, much more um, use of what are called press fit knee replacements. Yep. So um, same kind of conversation about hip replacement where, you know, typically knee replacement is held in place with a glue, which could potentially break down over time. Um, so in patients with good bone structure, um, um, younger patients, you know, active patients, you can place parts that have metal components that the bone will actually grow and heal to. Um, so some of these things I think we're hoping will even advance that further. Um, but again, you know, if you're, if you're looking for what I'm telling my patients, I'd say, you know, 20, 20 plus, you know, is kind of the, is the goal for, for knee replacement. Um, just, uh, What's, what's your breakdown between hips and knees? I mean, do you do one yeah. more? Um, I would uh, say the average, um, the average is more towards knee. Um, I can't tell you exactly. In my practice, it's probably about 60 to 40 knee replacement to hip replacement. Gotcha. Um, there are a lot of surgeons um, that are more comfortable and willing to do knee replacement than hip replacement. So us surgeons that do hip replacement probably have a little bit higher percentage of that, you know, of that population. Gotcha. Um, but I'd say it's, yeah, it's probably, you know, 60, 40, 70, 30. So knees are much more common to see arthritis with. And how long have you been doing this? <laughs> uh, good question. I hear that one a lot too. Um, this I'm in my sixth year at summit. So, um, so I've been, uh, uh, practicing look, for six years. You look very young. So. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. So again, um, let's ask this. Uh, what common mistakes do you see your patients make after a knee replacement? So knee replacement, I think, um, even more so than hips, the, the big mistake, there's, I guess, kind of two ends of it. One is not doing enough. So, you know, moving very slowly after surgery, um, knees are much more difficult to rehab. So when it comes to regaining range of motion, gotcha, yes. um, regaining function, um, it's, it's a lot harder process and there tends to be more pain involved with knee replacement. So, um, I do see patients that have a tough time overcoming that and, and just don't do a lot. Um, and the worry there is that they'll build, they'll develop scar tissue. They'll, they'll, um, have difficulty regaining the function and movement. Um, you as a PT know all about yep. trying to get knees to move after surgery. Yep. Um, but that can turn into a long-term issue. So if you, your scar tissue develops too severely, you can't really fix that, you know, without potentially having more surgery or, or those sort of things. So you've really got that one chance right after surgery to get the knee moving. So that's a big worry, but again, just kind of like I mentioned with hip replacement, um, the overdo it probably is almost more of an issue with knees. So um, knees swell a lot, um, knees are quite painful. And so again, you see those patients that feel like the right answer to recovering is just getting up on their feet and doing things all day long. Um, standing, you know, going right. back to work real quickly, whatever exactly. it is. And those patients get a ton of swelling um, and they have a lot of more trouble controlling pain. And so my, my mindset on it is kind of the happy medium, right? When you're doing your physical therapy, it should be very hard. It should hurt. 
Um, it should be a lot of work, but you should absolutely put multiple chunks through the day to stop, elevate your foot, ice the knee, sure. um, rest, and, and give it a chance to calm down because that, I think, makes a big difference um, and keeps you out of those points where you just get so you know, overly aggravated that, that you're falling behind. Yeah, that was my mother-in-law, unfortunately. But um, sure. do, you, do you still do um, man manipulations? Yeah, okay. yep. So manipulation is still um, something we see. Uh, what that is, is essentially, you know, usually around the three-month mark of after surgery is when we really start worrying that scar tissue is going to develop too thickly or too, you know, too fully to, to, um, to work through. And so manipulation sure. is as simple as a, um, a five minute sedation where you're actually put under anesthesia so that me as the surgeon can do a very, very aggressive physical therapy appointment for you. Um, <laughs> and that's, and that's bending the knee, straightening the knee and breaking down some of those scar tissue barriers that are holding you back from getting that motion. Um, so, you know, we don't do a lot of them, but they can be in the right patient. They can be extremely, extremely helpful if there's just sort of that, you know, that last little bit of scar or that last band of tissue that just won't quite give, give way to let them get that motion back. It really is a race against scar tissue, isn't it, afterwards? Yeah, in knees, absolutely, yeah. very much. So um, let's talk about swollen legs after knee surgery. Yeah. Common? Yep. I would say um, very common and probably more common than hips. Um, same okay. idea, you know, knees just in and of themselves tend to swell more than hips do. So you'll see patients with large effusions, which is, you know, a large collection of fluid in the knee, whether that's just surgical fluid, whether that's inflammatory fluid during the recovery process. Um, but that in and of itself can cause swelling to kind of push, you know, up and down into the thigh, into the calf. Um, but also very much slows down the, the venous process. And so you see a lot of foot swelling um, after knee replacement. So you yeah. see patients, we do, we use um, compression socks. Um, we use, you know, compression, the sequential compression devices, they're called, which are, yes. the, you know, the kind of the sporadic squeezing um, yeah. machines, all to try to keep that fluid moving through the, the foot and ankle. Gotcha. A little uh, lymphedema massage too. Um, that too. Right. All right. Um, let's talk about uh, patients' BMI or are they too heavy for a knee replacement? Is yeah. That same issue. Um, same issue. Yeah. So that falls right into the kind of the same category as hip replacement. You know, your your BMI of forty five is sort of that big tipping point gotcha. for, for a, an increased risk of in, in complications. Um, and so, you know, knees tend to be a little easier to manage, you know, in, in patients that are a little bit overweight, the knees tend not to gain a lot of weight, if you will, you know, so the tissues are still typically pretty easy to work with. Um, but, you know, if patients have severe lymphedema, or if they have excess tissue, that can lead to uh, more room for fluid to collect, more room for potential infections to, to brew. Um, and then again, the same idea of um, medically, 
um, you know, managing all the other comorbidities that come with that. Sure. Um, the diabetics, the, um, the um, sleep apnea patients, heart conditions, things that, that, you know, tend to go hand in hand. I think I forgot to ask you this one on the hip replacement, but uh, do you consider any of your patients too old or too young for the surgery? Yeah. Um, so we'll, I'll do knee replacement first. So when it comes to knee replacement, um, there's no formal age. Um, you know, again, in previous generations, the idea was, you know, the longevity is so low and we don't have the technology to redo these as, as we need to. So it was big push to wait till you're, you know, 65, 70 to even sure. consider it. Um, that is, that's changed really drastically, partly because our implants are so much better, partly because patients are getting arthritis so much younger now, probably because of activity level and sports and injuries and all these things. Sure. Um, but also because we have the technology to redo these as we need to, um, in a I very see. reasonable way. And so on the young side, I mean, I think the goal is to wait as long as you can. You know, I wouldn't just rush into this in your 30s if you can, if you can avoid it. Um, but I, we have patients, you know, I've seen patients down into their 20s due to, really? severe injur to severe injuries or to due to things like juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. You know, there's conditions yeah. that cause these joints to degenerate at a very young age. Um, and so, so it can be young. And then on the flip side, elderly, um, it's very much a conversation about function, um, health, function, independence, you know, patients that still live alone. I've got patients in their 90s that still live alone, still drive, still fully take care of themselves. Um, and those patients are still reasonable candidates. You know, it's a, it's a different conversation. There's some risks with that, obviously, but sure. um, I would say it's, you know, it's a, it's a, case by case basis, but you'll see, like I said, wide ranges. I mean, there's even, you'll see research or you'll see stories of, of kids in their, you know, in their teens getting hip replacements oh due to God. dysplasia or due to, you know, birth defects or things like that. So um, it's, it's, the technology is there to handle those things, but it's, um, you know, the, the general mindset is do it in the, you know, later part of life if possible. Right. Makes sense. All right. Um, how about a, if your knee is still hurting, you know, a year after surgery, mm -hmm. what might be going on there? Yep. Uh, with knee replacement, um, again, the, you know, the functional, um, the functional use of a knee replacement and the outcome you get when it comes to aches and pains and things like that, a lot have to do with how far the rehab process has gotten. So um, again, if you have any chronic scar tissue in your knee, that can cause some pain because um, your range of motion won't be as full as it could be. And so that can restrict you with certain things or, or hurt if you bend it too far, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but also muscular function. So um, strength is a big piece of, of good knee function. Um, the quad muscle, which is in the front of your thigh, is your main muscle for, um, you know, just kind of day-to-day -day knee function, if you will, when it comes to getting sure. out of chairs, climbing stairs, um, squatting, bending, turning, all that. And so um, strengthening that muscle um, is a big part of good function in the knee replacement. And if you don't strengthen it well, it actually very much can cause pain. 
because it affects some of the stability in your knee. It affects the, um, the way your kneecap functions and tracks as you move. And so, um, so, you know, again, that kind of that under rehab is a big reason why people have pain, but then again, just like any other surgery, if there's, if there is an infection or if there is, um, complications with the implants or, or the pieces that are in there, um, those are all other reasons that, you know, you may have some kind of chronic or lingering pain and, and those are, those are important to, to look into. What about the knee that's clunking or clicking? There's yeah. A small percentage, right? Right. Uh, I would say, I would say there's probably the majority of knees click in some way or fashion. Um, and the part of that is just the nature of how your knee mechanics work. So, you know, your knee is not like a hip where it's a, a ball and socket that stays tightly bound to itself the whole time. Um, knees pivot, they turn. It's not just a perfect straight forward right. and back joint. And so there's rotation that happens. Um, your ligaments are elastic, right? So they are supposed to stretch some so that your knee can pivot and bend and move into different positions. And so when that happens, if you have two hard surfaces and metal and plastic next to each other, as those pivot and twist and turn and, and stretch, you're going to feel and hear little clicks. Um, so I see that in most patients. Um, some people don't notice it or don't care. Sure. Um, some people, it really does aggravate them a little bit. Um, and I would say 99% of the time, those clicks and noises are completely normal. Gotcha. Um, you do see some patients where, you know, as we're trying to surgically recreate their stability, um, we underestimate that and there can be too much movement in the knee. Gotcha. Um, so those tend to have more clicking and clunking, but they also tend to have a lot more other symptoms. So swelling, um, potentially pain, you know, giving way where their knee wants to kind of cave in on them. Um, so there can be a, a problem there, There's but really like the, the vast majority of clicking is not, is not an issue. You can't do anything about it, right? I mean, uh, no, you really can't. You know, I, I kind of actually have learned as I've, as I've done more of this, you know, you try to, uh, you'd think the tighter you can get those ligaments to be and the more stable it can be, the better. Um, but I think um, a little bit of clicking in your knees actually probably expected and probably a good thing because really, if you look at natural knee mechanics, there is there is stretch and pivot and movement in your sure. knee. And if, if you want it to, you know, if you're looking for that function, um, that's, you know, that's something that um, is actually probably a, a benefit after your knee replacement. Uh, this next question I actually had too. I mean, can you kneel after knee surgery, after replacement? So uh, you can. Um, so a knee replacement, you know, we haven't proven that kneeling on your knee replacement damages it or causes any major problems to it. I would say the vast majority of people don't really enjoy kneeling. Um, and the reason is, I think two things. One is just, you know, you have an implant and when you do a knee replacement, the majority of knee replacements, you put a new surface on the, the underside of your kneecap. Kneecap, right. And so even though your kneecap is still there and the bone structure is still there, um, that pressure you put on that implant and into the knee is much different than what your, you know, 
your your normal knee would do. And so that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. And then secondarily, you know, your incision for your knee replacement is typically right over the kneecap. Oh, sure. Um, and that can be sensitive just because it's some scar tissue there. And it also causes some numbness in the knee right around that incision. And so it's a it's a, a much different experience to kneel afterwards. But you can, I have plenty of patients that do. Um, I think probably the the best advice is if you do need to kneel or want to kneel for different things, you know, if it's working around the house, if it's gardening, if it's how you, you know, what you do for work, um, using pads, you know, whether it's a foam pad on the ground, wearing knee pads, um, I think it'll be much more comfortable that way. Are you ever worried about the bone be too, being too thin in the patella and you might break it or not? Um, yes. Um, that's not common, but you can see patients when they have really severe kneecap arthritis, they can erode a large portion of that bone away. Um, and yes, we do kind of have a minimum thickness that we need to, you know, to feel comfortable um, putting that new surface on because you have to drill small little holes into the bone to hold, to hold, you know, for pegs, they're, they're called to hold those into place. Um, and a fractured kneecap is, you know, one of the worst things that can happen after knee replacement because sure. it can really significantly affect function. They're hard to fix. Um, and so, yeah, we, you know, I've had a handful, it doesn't happen often, but I've had a handful where you kind of have to choose just to leave, leave what's there alone. Gotcha. Um, and it doesn't drastically affect the function, but you know, it's, it's just a, yeah, there's, there are some of those times where people have gone so far down the road and have dealt with it for so long that that bone structure is really damaged. Sure. Well, we got to ask about showering and driving also after yeah. knee replacement. Yep. Um, so uh, similarly with, with knee replacement, you know, the vast majority of us use waterproof dressings. So um, you can shower usually within the first day or two. Um, those dressings nice. keep the incision clean and dry and allow it to, um, to nicely, you know, just kind of, um, um, seal off that area. Um, right. you can wrap the knee, the knee is a lot easier to wrap with like a press and seal or a saran wrap to keep it dry than the hip or other joints. Um, and so that's an option too, for some patients, but, uh, showering is pretty quick in the process. Gotcha. Um, and then as driving goes, it's, um, it's, again, kind of based on two scenarios. It's, it's, are you taking pain meds or not? You know, you have to be off any strong narcotic medicines to drive. And also, do you have the, you know, the functional use of that leg, especially if it's your right leg to, to operate. And so, again, it, on average, it's, you know, kind of a three to six week process probably to get really comfortable and confident in, in operating a car. Gotcha. All right, we're down to the last question of the day. So anything, All right. anything new on the horizon for knee replacements? Um, so knee replacement, I think probably the two things I mentioned a little bit, the, um, the press fit materials, um, that is becoming a much more mainstream idea gotcha. of, um, of trying to improve longevity that way. And so um, I think that will become more and more common to see. Um, secondarily, um, robotic surgery is, is continuing to, to progress. And so um, in knee replacement, especially um, the technology is advancing really quickly. Um, the idea behind it is helping appropriately align 
the components to appropriately balance the tissues to make sure that um, the knee's not too loose or too tight um, to make sure the alignment, you know, is just right. Um, and a lot of that can be done by the surgeon, but, you know, robotics can give you a little extra help or, or can sure. maybe um, help in some more complex cases where patients have significant bone damage or a lot of deformity to their knee. And so, Again, it's not totally mainstream, but um, you'll see more and more and more of that as the years go on, I believe. Very good. Dr. Dane Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N. Uh, you got it. With Summit Orthopedics. Um, he's in, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Vagnus Heights? It's, yeah, Vagnus Heights. Vagnus Heights and Woodbury. Yep. And uh, it's summitortho.com. If you want to find the website, um, he's got, again, 55 great testimonials. And so you can check them out. So thank you again for joining us. Um, uh, I hope we can have you again some of the time, Avery. Yeah, some more of those yeah this is great. I'm, I'm happy to, uh, I think, you know, I think these are awesome situations. I think patients... Really my my goal always is to, you know, help educate people. And, and in a 15 minute visit, it's tough to get through a lot of things. So yeah, likewise. Um, having this kind of info out there, I really, I appreciate it because I think my patients feel more comfortable. They know they, you know, they have yes. a little bit more education on what's going on. And, and I think it's, it's great. So I'd be happy to come back. Well, thanks for taking the time. We'll yes, you're you. welcome. Yeah. Thanks so much.